3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. CCR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And as is with me in the studio, we're just getting set up, but I hope everybody is, uh, is having as good a morning as you possibly can. It is, uh, a little less cold. I actually managed to ride in this morning with no gloves on. So, um, huge congratulations to me for that. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a stressful time in terms of COVID cases rising. We've, uh, you know, heard about monkeypox, but there's been a lack of proper public health communication about that. So I'm excited about today's show because I think we're going to touch on some pertinent issues that are happening at the moment. So we might jump into a rundown of what we've got on for today. I'll kick it off. So we're going to first hear from the upcom- about the upcoming Dwelling Justice Forum with Libby Porter and David Kelly from RMIT's Center for Urban Research. And Libby and David caught up with Zeb and Kevin from the City Limits program yesterday. And City Limits um, runs on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on 3CR. And the Dwelling Justice Forum is going to be running on Friday, the 26th of August from 1 to 7 p.m. And we'll have more information about where... You can find out more in the show notes and including, uh, yeah, how to get tickets and what the lineup's going to be because it looks really fantastic. Um, I might jump into the, um, to the next one or do you want to? It is. Okay. Um, so we're next going to be joined by Mark Holden. He's a Tangari man who works as the solicitor and policy advocate for Mob Strong Debt Help, which is part of the Financial Rights Legal Center. And, uh, Mark joins us to discuss the collapse of disgraced funeral insurer ACBF, UPLA, earlier this year and its effects on Aboriginal communities and recently announced government support, as well as associated regulatory issues. And Mark has been working on ACBF matters for the past four years. And then we'll be joined by Dr. Claire Laughlin, who is a lecturer in criminology in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Her research examines the modes, practices and effects of living in and working in confinement spaces and the carceral expansion accompanying border control practices. And she joins us today to speak on the policy paper, Healthcare and Health-Related Harms of Australia's Refugee Externalisation Policies. Yeah, really important. And I'm really keen for that conversation. And that was co-authored, I believe, by Sam O'Donnell, um, Sarah Dem and Jordi Silverstein. So um, after that, we're going to be joined by Joshua Badge, and they are a writer and scholar living on Wurundjeri land in Melbourne. And they join us today to speak about the need for a comprehensive public health response to the monkeypox outbreak and share some information about how to keep yourself and your community safe. And they're also going to speak with us about the importance of destigmatization of the disease, because, of course, I think the majority of people's exposure right now through the media to uh, information about monkeypox has really been colored by the stigmatization that has gone along with it um, 
particularly targeted against gay and bisexual men that have sex with, uh, gay and bisexual men and men that have sex with men. Um, and so Joshua has worked pro bono in public health policy at Thorn Harbor Health for several years. And for the last two years, they've also been working freelance in the health sector. Um, I think we might go to a community service announcement and we'll come back to you with headlines. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 28th of July. Now, listeners, please be advised these headlines do contain mention of First First Nations people who have died. So we'll start with the first headline. The death of a First Nations woman and her child in the Northern Territory has prompted renewed urgent calls for the federal government to invest in the safety of First Nations women. The incident is being investigated as a domestic violence-related murder-suicide, with a third person suspected to be the woman's partner also found dead at the scene. The deaths are the fourth domestic violence-related fatality reported in Alice Springs in the past 18 months, all of which have received shamefully little attention in the mainstream media. Advocates say that family violence services in the Territory are doing a lot of work unfunded or with very limited resources, making long-term prevention efforts difficult. Also in news headlines, a New South Wales coronial inquest into the drowning death of a Gomorrah man has revealed police called off the search before attending officers were across all details of the incident. The inquest was told that 22-year-old Gordon Copeland fled from a vehicle he was a passenger in into the flooding Gawadu River after police followed the vehicle, mistakenly thinking it was stolen. The senior police officer, who then oversaw the search for Mr. Copeland, said she did not read officer statements before attending the scene and would not have known would not have called off the search if all details were known. Police called off the search after three days and Mr. Coupland's body was not found until the search was reopened three months later after sustained community pressure. Mr. Coupland's family had not stopped searching for him. Also in headlines this week, a bill to scrap the cashless welfare card has been introduced into the federal parliament, which signals a move from the ineffective and punitive measures that caused people to feel shame and anguish. Under the existing cashless debit card scheme, up to 80% of a person's payments are placed on the card and cannot be used to withdraw money. The card was hailed by the former federal government as a solution to encouraging socially responsible behavior, but a scathing Auditor General report released earlier this year has found once again that it does not reduce harm. Advocates have long said that the card lessens people's agency over their own finances and makes already marginalized people's lives harder. Under the new legislation, more than 17,000 existing participants will be progressively moved off the card and no one will be newly assigned to the scheme. And we'll return to discuss this a bit more at the end of headlines. 
And finally in headlines, Myanmar state media reported this week that the military has executed four political prisoners, including a former National League for Democracy lawmaker, Pro Zia Thor, and democracy activist Ko Jimmy. Since its coup in February last year, the Myanmar military has used extrajudicial killings, torture, and arbitrary arrest and detention of protesters to exert control. In response, Western governments have been largely silent, with the Australian government making no move to sanction senior military officers or publicly delegitimize their power. Advocates in Australia continue to call for the government to take action, including recognizing that the Myanmar National Unity Government, which represents the democratically elected president and those who oppose the military coup, by ensuring humanitarian responses is supported and channeled through the Unity Government. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, 28th of July. Yeah, and I just want to jump back in there around the cashless debit cards. I think there has been um, a lot of concern um, and, you know, public concern, uh, expressions of concern about what happens next, because I think something uh, that you know, that we need to pay attention to here is that the much longer standing basics card, uh, income management of the basics card, which was introduced in the Northern Territory intervention in 2007 and continued under, uh, uh, under the Labour government in the form of new income management, which then reinstated the Racial Discrimination Act in 2010, is something that is still ongoing at this moment. And while we understand that Labour has made a policy commitment in their First Nations policy to end compulsory income management, the messaging that has been provided to the public has been, you know, quite equivocal um, and has sort of gone back and forth on a lot of things. And I think what is really required is a clear public statement about what's going to happen and also a justification for why uh, First Nations people, uh, you know, the majority of First Nations people that were already on income management will be left to languish on compulsory income management uh, during the process that the cashless debit card is scrapped as well. So we'd really like to see some clear communications about why that is necessary um, as we go forward and eventually see these uh, schemes scrapped for good. Um, so, yep, that's our news headlines for Thursday, the 28th of July, and you're listening to 3CR on 855 a.m. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunjalini, at the fire in Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bunjil's Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. Up next, we hear all about the upcoming Dwelling Justice Forum with Libby Porter and David Kelly for RMIT Centre for Urban Research. Libby and David caught up with Zeb and Kevin from the City Limits Program, and here are they now. So they're here to talk about the Dwelling Justice Forum, which is happening next month. But first of all, do you want to just introduce yourselves a little bit um, and, you know, your backgrounds, maybe starting with Libby? 
Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Libby, uh, Libby Porter. I'm an educator and researcher uh, living on stolen Wurundjeri land and uh, pay respects. Um, I work at RMIT University in the Centre for Urban Research, and my work is really around the relationship between uh, urbanisation, urban processes, housing, land justice, uh, dispossession, questions like that. And I'm David Kelly. I work very closely with Libby Porter here on Stone Wurundjeri land. Um, and I look at all of those things plus with a specific focus on public housing and homelessness and crisis accommodation. Great. And so this forum, can you tell us basically like the main themes that you'll be addressing um, and why you've organised it? For sure. So the main themes we're addressing are really the relationship or the intersection between uh, housing justice questions with sovereignty, land justice questions, and uh, incarceration or abolition movements. Because what we're increasingly thinking about and, and I guess, observing um, as, as researchers but also as activists um, in this space is um, that we need to draw better connections perhaps between, particularly between uh, housing movements with, with those other uh, related kinds of movements and, and related uh, campaigns. It's uh, as a person who's always been interested in, and um, uh, passionate, I suppose, and, and wanting to contribute on questions of what dispossession means in a much wider sense and how someone like me, who's you know, uh, a not Indigenous person uh, living on stolen land and benefiting from dispossession and genocide, w what does that mean for my accountability and, and responsibility in the work? Um, when we're working in, um, in sort of housing campaigns, one of the things I've, I've often observed is how uh, frequently I you know, come on air at 3CR, for example, and talk about the importance of things like public land or public housing. And I know that um, the community here and the, and the listeners as well are, um, are passionate about those things and are concerned about you know, the loss of public housing, the privatisation of public land, all of, those, all of those aspects that we often talk about. Um, but so frequently I kind of catch myself in my own mind thinking about what does it mean to say that on stolen land? How can we change our, our language, our campaign strategies um, to more properly come into a better relationship with um, Indigenous sovereignty uh, and, and what does that kind of look like in, in reality? So the, the Forum for Dwelling Justice is, is really trying to energise that intersection. It's trying to bring conversation, bring people together around what that might look like. And so we've tried to curate uh, a set of people that can uh, help uh, collectively help us all think through uh, those, those relationships. I've got to say, injustice and dwelling seem to come together in the recent exposés about things like the Coburg Motor Inn, where you know, crisis accommodation is obviously qu quite dreadful conditions. Uh, that, that's one example, I would think, of, uh, of what shouldn't happen. Yeah, totally. Um, and there are multiple intersections with Coburg Motor Inn as well when we're talking about dwelling, because a lot of the single men who find themselves in the Coburg Motor Inn come from the most recent form of accommodation is prison mm. um, and so really what we're talking about here is, um, is a state that funds dwelling a lot but it funds it in the wrong way it funds prisons and ex prison expansions and that sort of thing and it really just increases the dwelling precarity that we're seeing so 
we're trying to I, we're trying to bring together a lot of different threads here, but at the same time, it will strengthen a broader dwelling justice movement because it's not just about public housing. It's also about these forms of really intense precarity that happen at places like the Mo- Coburg Motor Inn, but also in in prisons and in private rental as well. Right. And so what sort of voices are you going to have at the forum? Um, who are the speakers and, and what are they going to be focusing on? Yeah. Um, so we're going to have some a lot of campaigners, basically, people who are rooted in the movements that they're talking about. So um, we have um, an opening keynote by Senator Lydia Thorpe, who's going to really foreground and set up sovereignty as fact for the rest of the event so that we carry that through as a fact, not as something that we just kind of compartmentalize or acknowledge on a in a, in a very performative way, but something that each of the panels then speak to. So the panels are populated by a lot of people who work within these campaigns for um, an end to the prison industrial complex, um, an end to, to incarceration. Um, and so the second panel is uh, chaired by Natalie Ironfield, who works in this um, prison abolitionist movement, and is going to chair a panel with people like Whitgurry, um, Deb Kilroy. Um, we also have others, such as um, they're all starting to escape. Rouge Rouge. Um, mm. uh, <coughs> pardon me, and, and, a, and a third panel uh, looking at the intersection. Uh, particularly of housing and housing justice movements um, and, and spanning out a little bit more um, broadly. So uh, we've got a couple of international people joining that panel, uh, including Tina Grandinetti, who set up or was involved in the tenants movement um, in Honolulu, looking at the relationship between um, Kanaka Maoli uh, houseless encampments and uh, the fights for kind of housing and land justice and the way they uh, coalesce um, in, in that space. Uh, so, uh, so Tina, alongside uh, um, uh, all, all the names have dropped out of my head, alongside Nat Osborne from, uh, from Mianjin, uh, speaking on, on those intersections from that context um, and, and a bunch of others besides. Yeah, and it's going to be um, at, at the end of the, the event we're going to have two film screenings. One is a sneak peek of the Benigo Street documentary by Jazz, who is a friend of the show. Um, and then we're going to have a full-length premiere of a doco called Things Will Be Different, which is tracking the displacement of two households from the Walker Street in Northcote Estate um, during its demolition under the Public Housing Renewal Program. So we have a kind of mixed bag of a lot of different things happening, but they all kind of speak to the intersections of this dwelling justice thing. Mm. We commented on this show last week that <coughs> excuse me, that Chris Maxwell, the retiring um, head of the Court of Appeal, had dismissed an appeal against severity upset and saying he had no choice but in fact it was total injustice and he really got stuck into the government for the minimum penalties which are part of the problem we're seeing in so many people in prison. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I don't know much about that specific um, event, but uh, I think you know looking at the ways in which uh, policing systems, the, the actual structures of the criminal justice system and the wider... Um, structures and processes, I suppose, of like things like housing markets um, actually interrelate 
because they do very deeply and yet we don't bring probably enough attention um, we perhaps particularly in the, the sort of housing and urban research field I don't think we in our community bring enough attention to that intersection we don't notice that there's more money being spent for example more public investment in prison systems than there are in housing systems for example we're not we're not um, openly and uh, and explicitly examining um, empirically that relationship um, so so a lot of the work of the that we're trying to achieve in the forum and and the work that we hope will unfold from it uh, is bringing I guess greater accountability um, into those kinds of conversations so that we can draw out exactly those threads that you that you mentioned Kevin um, this is a sort of slightly left to send a question but I'm just interested in your own um, like personal experiences of being activist scholars um, and what it's like being um, an activist in the context of like a university institution and and um, what you like you know does that um, what does that mean for like radical action and like connecting with other campaigns it's a great question, uh, one, we, one I get asked a, a little bit. Um, I, it, it's an uncomfortable position um, and, and that's a good thing because I think being uncomfortable is a, is a useful <laughs> tool. Uh, I often say to, my, say to myself and others, uh, whenever I'm feeling too comfortable, that means something's going wrong. Um, <laughs> I'm probably making a mistake somewhere. Um, so, so I think using that discomfort is, is a useful thing. Um, I mean, you know, co- universities are big colonial institutions. Um, they are also big neoliberal institutions. They don't take kindly, particularly, to this kind of work. Um, they certainly don't count it, um, generally speaking. Um, but sometimes you can find little corners uh, in institutions and, and I'd argue that our uh, centre that we belong to and our colleagues um, are very much that kind of corner uh, of, a, of a big colonial institution that uh, where this kind of work can, can get done uh, or at least we as practitioners of it, David and I, can, can do this kind of work um, with a degree of of intellectual freedom and um, and bringing some of the resources of the university as best we can to bear on that to support that kind of work, I think is is really part of our role um, in in a university setting. Yeah, it also there's a bit, a bit of a myth out there that activists don't need research evidence, and they do, and we do. Um, so what we're doing, one of our jobs as activist scholars, is to provide research evidence for you know, protest movements and campaigns and that sort of stuff because it is valuable. It is valuable to turn and say, hey, look, like, this is an issue. It's a quantifiable empirical issue that we can actually say with certainty is a problem and is doing harm. So I think part of our role here is to go to people like renters and housing unions, say public housing collective, homes, not prisons, and say, hey, what sort of research evidence would help you in your activist activities? Mm -hmm. Um, mm. and being able to provide that. So that's kind of one of the unique things that we're able to do, which I think is a bit unique. Well, the previous government, I think, saw research as decidedly dangerous, in fact. But mm. um, a recent article in The Age pointed out that at the um, Ascot Vale uh, public housing, where there's, one again, the so-called renewal program going on, that, in fact, just to... To fix these places up would cost 182 grand per apartment, but building new ones is costing 595. So even where they are spending money, they could be spending a lot less and getting better results. I would have thought. 
Yeah, and shout out to our friends at Office who did that feasibility study, who basically proved that the government are wasting money. What we can for all the benchmarks that they set in terms of sustainability and all that sort of stuff, we can meet those at a much lower cost without displacing communities. Um, and these are communities who have lived there for decades. So we know we can do this at a cheaper rate. And the question really is why are the economic rationalists in government not not actually foregrounding economic rationalism when it comes to this? And <laughs> the reason is because this is really, um, again, harking back to the public um, idea and with the problematics of using the word public, but what we're seeing is privatization of public resources, um, of, of land and that sort of stuff. So that's the government's motivation is to get this off the books so that it's no longer risk, so that it's no longer depreciating, depreciating asset for them. There's no liability. Um, but, you know, it's not about economic, economic rationalism and it's not about what's in the best interest of the community who already live there. Mm. And, li and line that one up, um, uh, Kevin, against yesterday's discussion um, in some of the, the broadsheets about um, land banking and, and, the, mm. and the way in which that operates. So I think you know, beginning to see the connections between these things. These, these, are, all, these are small communities of practice, if you like, um, elite communities of practice that have fingers in so many pies that most of us can't see. Um, and so beginning to sort of shine lights on, on those connections and really see them for what they are so that we can really understand what we're being sold, which is really a, 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 a lemon, um, in relation to things like the public housing renewal program and and other kinds of you know the big housing build and and so on um, and they're not just you know because the the numbers don't stack up and we could do it much more cheaply but there's much more at stake here um, and we're trying to really expand that conversation to look at w what is the much more at stake here. Um, that's yeah. what we're trying to do. And ironically, of course, the same people who are land banking are the ones calling out saying we need more supply. Of course. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and you can see how those two things feed each other, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it, also, it also comes, of course, in terms of housing to the fact that as we, as we grow, as we have urban sprawl, we're, we're destroying environments as well. That's, that's a further problem, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, but also the supply thing is, is just a complete mythos. Like there's mm. more vacant homes in Australia than there are people who need them. There's, we don't have a supply issue. We have a utilisation issue and a... And a, and a, uh, a we have a market. That's yeah. what we have. Mm. <laughs> That's the problem. Um, the problem is we have a market in housing rather than a, rather than a, a, a principle of, uh, you know, if you like, housing as a human right to, to use that kind of framework. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, what would you want to come at the end of this um, this forum you're holding? What, what do you want to see come out of it? Mm. We, we we don't want to be too prescriptive about what people do afterwards because really we think that the people who we've been able to bring together are clever people who have lots of energy, maybe not as much capacity, but um, they we're we're confident that you know something organic will happen between the connections that are made, but. Really what we want is for the housing justice movement to come closer to the messages that are coming out of the sovereignty movement, the messages that are coming out of the abolitionist movement, so that we can actually come together as a more coordinated political class that is seeking dwelling justice, which is a more expansive term. It's not just about houses. It's about the forms of dwelling that take place in a settler colony. 
and been able to resist them. So we're hoping, you know, to galvanize a bit more of a, a more expansive movement under a broader moniker. But we also have resources at our disposal being researchers and um, in a big institution where we can actually maintain a network, where we can keep these people in conversation with each other. Um, and so that's kind of one of the baseline things that we want to get out of it. Yeah. Very important. In fact, look, we better, we're going to have to wind up, but just give us details so people can know what's going on. Yep, sure. So the event is taking place on the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre in Melbourne CBD. Um, so that's on Swanson Street. And it's going to be from 1 p.m. till about 7 p.m. Um, with, a, with a decent break in between um, in the middle of the event. So, um, yeah, if you want to go to the uh, event webpage, it's... Uh, Cur, C-U-R dot org dot au <laughs> slash events. Yeah. Just repeat that again so people get a pen in their hand or something. So www.cur.org.au slash events. Right. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we just heard all about the upcoming Dwelling Justice Forum with Libby Porter and David Kelly from RMIT's Center for Urban Research. And they caught up with Zeb and Kevin from the City Limits Program. Now, the event is running on Friday, the 26th of August from 1 to 7 p.m., and we'll have information about that, a link to tickets in our show notes. And you can also tune in to City Limits on 3CR on Wednesdays from 9 a.m. and head to 3cr.org.au forward slash city limits to listen back to past programs. Now, we're going to jump into our next interview, and... um, and we're going to be joined by Mark Holden, who's a Dungari man who works as the solicitor and policy advocate for Mob Strong Debt Help, part of the Financial Rights Legal Center. And Mark joins us to discuss the collapse of disgraced funeral insurer ACBF, UPLA, earlier this year and its effect on Aboriginal communities and recently announced government support. And we're also going to talk about some associated regulatory issues. And Mark has been working on ACBF matters for the past four years. Mark, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I might jump into some of the sort of heavier context. Uh, the Royal Commission into Misconduct in the Banking Superannuation and Financial Services Industry, otherwise known as the Financial Services Royal Commission, handed down its report in February 2019, and this included exposing a number of serious cases of misconduct to be investigated by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, or ASIC. And ASIC has since commenced proceedings against a number of organizations, including ACBF, Funeral Plans, and UPLA group with regard to alleged contraventions of the ASIC Act, particularly here in the provision of funeral expenses insurance. Now, the company's collapse in early 2022 has resulted in thousands of Aboriginal people being left without funeral coverage, despite having paid thousands of dollars for dishonoured policies. So could you start off by summarising some of the key issues at play here and the really serious impacts that this has had on Aboriginal people who had policies with UPLA? Yeah, Sure. So it's a, a very big, uh, perfect storm here of whereby you had this company pretend to be Aboriginal owned when it wasn't. Uh, then also as well, they were selling a junk insurance product, which had a very high level of uh, cancellation. Uh, they were also pretending it was not insurance well too, because that meant they would have to be regulated, which meant that a lot of people saw this as uh, funds. Uh, and also as well, they then try to be able to uh, 
well, sorry, then, then try to be able to have uh, failure of previous governments to be able to effectively regulate their operations. So, no, so, no, so it didn't really seem like there was anyone really sort of like seeing how this was going. Mm. And, and that, that was from, uh, and then we, you sort of uh, have uh, all this sort of build up here whereby thousands of people have been signed up under this precipice. And once, uh, and once uh, everything sort of blew off the lid with the Royal Commission, the, uh, the game was up. And so once they had to start uh, operating like a real company, they couldn't really keep up with that. Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't get a license to be able to uh, sell their products anymore. Uh, the money was being pushed overseas as well, too, into companies owned by former directors. Uh, and there was, just no, uh, there was just no real money left. And so uh, because of that, there was nothing to be able to be able to pay back uh, those who lost out here. So now we're sort of like uh, all catching up to uh, this uh, tra- tragedy right now. Mm. Yeah, and it is really, really seriously concerning as well because I think there's been a serious failure of face- First Nations people by regulatory bodies and various levels of government with respect to UPLA because... Obviously, this is not the first time that concerns had been raised about the fund. Uh, there have been issues with it over the past 30 years that have primarily been raised by Aboriginal people who have been affected by it and also by consumer advocates. So how were things allowed to get so bad? And what does this tell us about the state of our financial services regulatory environment in Australia? Well, from a, a more, I have more of an outside perspective here. Um, Sorry, I don't work for government, obviously. But mm-hmm. as well, though, uh, in the previous court cases involving ACBF, uh, ACBF had been arguing quite a lot to say that, well, if you were able to uh, say that this is wrong for one people, one person, you can't say it's wrong for everyone, uh, because they were threatening uh, to say that if this were to uh, be a systemic issue, then this would destabilize the member bases of those who were legitimate uh, 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 members of uh, ACBF. And so the court back then had sort of accepted arguments. And so it sort of became a lot difficult, very difficult to be able to try to make that sort of systemic uh, case there as well. Um, that, being sa- that being said, though, uh, there are some times whereby uh, these issues could have been fixed uh, so long ago. So, for example, back in 2004, when uh, the federal court had said that two of uh, ACBF's uh, fund products should be regulated, uh, ACBF then just created num- uh, fund number three, which then perfectly fitted under a Corporations Act exemption from being a financial product. Mm-hmm. That then meant that they did not have to have a license or, re- or be regulated as an insurer, instead to be regulated as a funeral fund under a state body. Um, but if they were to just simply mat- just uh, uh, remove that exemption, uh, back in 2004, then the damage would have been far, would have been uh, much more mitigated here as well. There would have been a lot more checks and balances on this before it would have gotten out of control. Um, but as well, though, that didn't happen until the 1st of April 2020. Yeah, it really feels like um, there was this failure to act over time that, you know, obviously could have saved so many people so much grief because this is ultimately an incredibly you know, personal thing, the Safe Sorry Business Coalition of Consumer Advocacy Groups, which represents thousands of Aboriginal policyholders, has been pushing for government action to support people affected by this because obviously hundreds of grieving Aboriginal families who have not been able to pay for funerals for their loved ones as a result of this scheme have been so deeply impacted by this. And this week, the federal government did announce that it was putting an estimated $4 million towards emergency relief for those families. 
But so can you tell us a bit more about the government's commitment here and what that means for the families of policyholders? Yeah, sure. So I just want to start a first bit of context there as well too. So we've been getting uh, thousands of phone calls from people ever since the collapse of March um, every day. Uh, people who have been uh, devastated and uh, hurt and uh, uh, basically humiliated over finding out the truth about HDPF. And what has been so concerning has been uh, how people have felt have lost so much money they've been paying over the decades here as well in the amount of tens of thousands of dollars per person. Um, and also as well, a lot of people have been so scared about how to be able to cover their funeral. Uh, some, we've had, uh, story, we've had uh, cases whereby they have made a claim with uh, ACBF, um, uh, they were told that everything will be fine, but then the day after, uh, ACBF then goes into liquidation. So they're left without any coverage for their loved one's uh, funeral costs. And so these are people who've been spending so many decades trying to be able to uh, pay uh, for, sorry, for sorry business to be responsible for it. But now people are having to uh, try to uh, take out loans or take out the super to be able to try and uh, pay for loved ones' funerals. It's causing a massive uh, intergenerational uh, economic impact to uh, communities. So with this uh, with this um, uh, measure announced on Monday, uh, it has uh, has two key components here. Um, first of all, is that the emergency funding is going to be used for anyone who has a who had an ACBF active policy since the 1st of April 2020, up to the 1st of April 2020, sorry, uh, and who have passed away uh, already and have tried to make a claim on that. Now, that, now the government will honour the policy benefit, but they, uh, they won't provide the refund. They will just be, um, pay you what uh, the benefit is owed. So if you have a policy for uh, $8,000, then the government will give you $8,000. Um, this uh, funding will be made available up until 30th of November next year, uh, which because they, to achieve the second um, uh, policy objective here, which is to uh, engage meaningfully with the community on what it is needs to be done here to be able to try and um, help those who have lost out here, help those who have been affected. So we are going to continue to engage with the, uh, the current federal, federal government to be able to uh, uh, help examine what is needed to be done here because what we need to make sure is needed here in this uh, compensatory scheme is, first of all, that uh, it is culturally sensitive, it is culturally safe, mm. that everyone gets to be able to um, have a say on this as well, uh, and also as well to be able to give people options here as well too. We don't want to have some sort of uh, blanket uh, idea on, uh, on remedy here, which would only help only a couple of people out, but not the rest of them as well too. We don't want to have a situation whereby government hands like, like a whole bunch of vouchers, uh, which we don't think is going to happen. But as well, though, uh, we want people to be able to decide what they want uh, to have here. Um, some people who have completed our survey have said things like they want to get their money back, uh, which is fair because we've been paying for so long. Um, others have said that, well, if you can't get the money back, then we want to be able to have uh, some sort of uh, funeral fund set up to be able to help uh, take care of sorry business. So uh, the, ma- the matter is still ongoing here as well too. We uh, we do think that this uh, does help um, put up the initial fires here of uh, people who've been trying to be able to get the sorry business paid for right now. Um, and it does give us uh, a bit of uh, flexibility to be able to uh, start um, engaging with, uh, with all the communities as well too here to be able to ask 
what it is that needs to be done here to fix this problem. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is does represent a, a first step, and obviously the Save Sorry Business Coalition is still continuing to, to advocate on behalf of um, Aboriginal policyholders. And as you said, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. People are asking for a variety of different things and to have options in uh, in the way that this goes forward. So um, what other changes uh, do you think need to happen in terms of both achieving a resolution for some of the remaining policyholders, uh, seeking compensation as well, and more broadly regarding some changes in the regulatory space to protect consumers, particularly First Nations consumers, against some of the devastating consequences that we've spoken about? Mm. So we want, so uh, like I said before, we want to be able to make sure that uh, those who have lost sight here are able to have a chance to have a say of what they want here as well too, to have their options, and also as well for the government to be able to uh, uh, base uh, their their remedy on those sort of measures there. Uh, I'm sorry, on those impact, impacts. Um, but as well, though, yeah, it, uh, the, the sad thing about this, though, is that there is a uh, virtually an industry of exploiting Aboriginal communities uh, that is out there, um, which the, the government needs to be able to uh, pay a lot of attention to as well. There needs to be uh, a lot more um, use of their product intervention powers, which is um, which is a really good uh, start there as well too. Um, also as well too, they need to start looking at uh, holding their um, directors of those companies that are responsible there as well too and trying to be able to um, utilise their uh, anti-phoenixing laws as well too. Uh, because a lot of times whenever you take an action against a company, the company goes under a direction and creates a new company and then starts all over again. So we need to be able to try to stop that um, that as a deterrent as well too. Um, but also as well too, we want to be able to um, have those regulators come out to the communities and uh, really engage with them what they want to have done here to be able to try and, uh, and uh, stop this from happening as well too. So one example you can probably look at is the Woodrow Woodrow um, signage project uh, up in uh, North Queensland, whereby the government had engaged the community and it was community-led uh, solutions there to be able to try and uh, make sure that uh, everyone uh, knew about the laws around unsolicited uh, sales practices, which had led to a, a massive decrease in uh, door-to-door salespeople in that community. Mm. So it, it's um, it's really the sort of like uh, little um, like micro things that uh, government can do here, uh, as well as the overall approach to try to deter uh, these sort of uh, people uh, from uh, from committing uncomfortable practices that can sort of like try and help out here. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, something that is important in that in that sort of broader milieu of changes that government can make here as well is, you know, strengthening some of those practices around who gets approved, uh, you know, to to be a, an authorized. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to put it, a biller with center pay as well, um, you know, and being able to access the center pay system, because that is um, how a lot of people were affected by this. That's right. Sorry. That's that's, uh, that's one thing that. Uh, uh, what had actually really uh, kickstarted the whole uh, mm. uh, problem as well too, because a lot of people that ACBF had uh, marketed to were living on Centrelink benefits, um, were living in uh, disadvantaged communities, and so uh, paying by centre pay uh, kept them uh, locked into paying onto this, uh, which caused them a lot of financial hardship because uh, ACBF got to have the first bite of their pension payment for the uh, before the customer gets it. Um, and also as well, too, there is like a sort of view about how uh, 
Centipede was seen as like some sort of uh, government sponsorship over it as well too in the past, um, because normally you, you normally you uh, pay things uh, through Centipede when it comes to uh, rental utilities. So people, a lot of people thought that uh, this was okay if you were to pay it through Centipede. Um, but once Centipede had uh, was uh, ended for ACBF, um, there was a steep decline in uh, numbers, uh, starting from about thirty-two thousand, and then gradually went going down to uh, 18,000 uh, or less uh, in a matter of uh, just a few years. Mm-hmm. So it's um, so it, they really there really should have been some sort of awareness as to um, how this whole thing was set up to be able to make yeah. people fail in this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's something that we should really be looking to uh, both the federal government and the regulators in terms of uh, keeping an eye on this and making sure this can't happen in the future. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to take us through this issue and also tell us a bit about what action is happening on it at the present. My pleasure. And that was Mark Holden, who is a Dungari man who works as the solicitor and policy advocate for Mobstrong Debt Help, part of the Financial Rights Legal Center. And he joined us to discuss the collapse of disgraced funeral insurer ACBF UPLA earlier this year, its effects on Aboriginal communities and recently announced government support, as well as associated regulatory issues. And Mark has been working on ACBF matters for the past four years. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August, at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narn. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narn. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter. And now we are joined by Dr. Claire Laughlin, who is a lecturer in criminology in the School of Uh, Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and her research examines the modes, practices, and effects of living and working in confinement sites and carceral expansion accompanying border policies. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Claire. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, of course. Absolutely. Any time. Well, so we know that you are here to speak on the policy paper called Healthcare and Health-Related Harms of Australian Refugee Policies, which is by Sarah Dem, yourself, Samantha O'Donnell, and Geordie Silverstein. Uh, could you speak to what refugee externalisation policies actually mean? Um, thanks so much, Inez. And this is a really important question. Um, and as you may, as you've mentioned, this report was produced with the support of an EU-funded uh, comparative network on the externalisation of refugee policies. So externalisation really means and this is something that a scholar, Jeff Quist, has defined as, as measures, any measures taken by states in locations beyond their territorial borders 
to obstruct, deter, or otherwise avert the arrival of refugees, asylum seekers, and other migrants who don't have prior authorization to enter the country they intend to, to enter to, to seek refuge. So, importantly, it's often marked by the extension of border and migration controls from um, places like Australia and Europe, countries in Europe, into neighbouring countries or um, nations in the global south. So, while externalisation practices often you know, typically extraterritorial, they're also very often exploitative in which um, states like Australia push their responsibilities for refugee protection and processing outwards away from their own territories. So we see um, you know, this done through agreements and deals with states that benefit from an injection of resources, so you can think about Nauru and PNG here. Um, and it really just aims to prevent asylum seekers from reaching state borders of signatory states to the Convention, which is Convention. Um, and offshore processing and boat turnbacks are a few examples, examples of this in the Australian context, particularly through Operation Southern Borders. That really has further militarised Australia's national border. And we can see the way that this, is, this example has also been taken up by the UK government in its recent proposal, weirdly and, and disturbingly, to send refugees for processing to camps in Rwanda. So just the last thing I will mention is that these arrangements often draw on private contracts with uh, different corporate, corporate entities which really dilute the capacity for signatory states like Australia to be held accountable for the sorts of harms we talk about in this report. Yeah, I think part of the state violence is definitely uh, privatisation and, you know, keeping a lot of what maybe could be possible um, even further get kept and... It's so clear that it's, you know, there is state violence happening in these places and it is the way they have been designed, uh, but also that it's such a long indefinite detention that causes such long-standing, systemically produced uh, harm. And, you know, I think just to provide some numbers, as of February 2022, there were 1,554 people in immigration detention in Australia, and the average of which of that detention was 687 days, some for much longer, including over 100 people who were detained for longer than five years. So I think I just want to ask, why do you think people are being held in Australian detention for so long, and how does this compare to immigration detention practices internationally? Yeah, look, thanks, Inez. And you're right to point to this as state violence. We wanted to emphasise that in this report too, that this is a policy that causes, you know, egregious and systemic harms, and it needs to be understood as a form of state violence. And there are many commentators and, and researchers that are referred to this as a form of state crime. So I want to put that up front too, um, because of the extensive harms that this system produces. But yeah, look, good question. Why are people being held in Australian detention for so long? And I should note that for many people, this is eight to ten years, which is really astonishing, especially in light of the sorts of complaints we had from people about hotel quarantine being locked up, you know, even in a hotel for two weeks. Um, this sort of experiences of confinement are, are, are really oppressive. And we need to ask this question, especially when the cost of detaining people is so excessive. And look, I don't have the figures at hand at the moment, but the cost is really significant. And this has been even... Um, uh, more so with the proliferation of private contractors who have often made profits, um, uh, you know, through through their arrangements with the Australian government. Um, we know that the, the Australian government, and this is both Labor and Liberal governments, have said that detention is just in place to merely process refugee claims. But if you look at the sort of 
the, the prolonged nature of the tension, the conditions in the tension, all the evidence points to the contrary. It simply makes no sense to detain people at all, essentially. And, and we know that, you know, many decades ago, this was not a policy, but it's become so normalised here. Um, we would argue, I think, that it's clearly designed to punishment and to communicate a message and experience punishment. So whether a person's detained, detained offshore, onshore and detention centres or hotel detention, these sites are really restrictive, they're highly routinised, heavily guarded and surveilled, very limited access to services. Um, and in many cases, you know, especially in detention, they look and feel like a prison. The practices that are, that are adopted, the, the policies and procedures, are drawn from correctional services. So if you look at places like Christmas Island Detention Centre, Billywood and former Baxter and Wimmera Centres, they were surrounded by razor wire. You know, they, they, as I said, they, they were for all intents and purposes a prison. So um, I think the, the aim here is clearly to send a message of punishment, to um, act as a deterrent um, uh it's a deterrent strategy. And it's also, I mean, there's an amazing article by a scholar at Macquarie called Joseph Pugliese who's done a kind of analysis of this and he said that also these places are designed to send a message to the Australian public that refugees who come by boat are and where suitably punished. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's really designed as a deterrent message, a deterrent um, strategy. We can't see any other... Um, basis for it because mm. it's certainly used for, for, for quick processing of claims. Yeah, I think, you know, knowing that the carceral system of logic, no matter what form or shape that it takes, doesn't benefit anybody, you know, even in terms of um, human human quality of life, but also, you know, if you want to talk to the other side of the political spectrum, even financially it doesn't. But I think when we look at border policies, they are just a way of furthering white supremacy and, like, their own own agenda. And I think it's so easy to forget in that border policy, in these numbers, there are actual human beings, and the actual direct health impact of indefinite detention is, you know, so... Momentous. People are dying en route to Australia. People are dying in detention. People are dying post-release due to untreated or poorly treated medical conditions or suicide, including ongoing mental illness, dental problems, chronic skin, heart conditions, in detention and upon release. And it does not end there. There is not enough support. So I think, yeah, just knowing that within detention there isn't a lot of access and post-release there isn't either. Could you speak to what access to healthcare looks like both in detention and post-release? Because there's clearly significant barriers. Yeah. Look, you're right. It, it, it looks pretty awful, to be frank. And I think this is another aspect of deterrent policy. Many of the refugees who were medevaced, I'll talk a bit shortly about the medevac rules, um, they were evacuated because they had... Um, uh, conditions, whether it was mental health or other conditions that were considered severe and serious enough to be evacuated to Australia where they presumably received adequate medical care. They haven't received that. Um, uh, Mustafa Azimish Bar, who's one of our speakers at one of the events we ran, uh, ran said that, you know, they, they just pres- prescribed Panadol and water. Um, there was no proper medical care for, for refugees. Everything was actually torture in places like hotel detention. So, Many of these health-related harms, including when they're fatal, are the result of just a, a, a failure to provide adequate medical care and intervention. 
and um, it's been described by some as non-care or by myself and other work as a form of neglect, which is actually intentional, even though it appears to me merely the, the failure to provide services. So medical, we know that medical infrastructures are woefully inadequate, leading to poor or no care at all, and this is especially the case under um, Australia's extraterritorial immigration regime. Um, neglect and uncare have really harmful effects, leading to, to suffering and death. And people are dying in these, these settings as a direct result of the failure to provide, provide care. And um, we know that, you know, the, the um, contracted international of medical, IMHMS, um, the contract to provide health services, and the, the, the contract between them and the Department of um, Immigration and Border Protection supposedly have this philosophy that underlies the provision of health care in detention that's ensuring that everyone has access to help get it sufficient to maintain optimal health and it's commensurate with health services in the Australian community. But this is clearly not the case and the contracts do not provide a true picture of medical care and support provided in practice. And there's many examples we can provide of this. Um, as Barry Batterford, who's the, um, the founder of Doctors for Refugees, said, you know, in, in places like Nauru and Manus Island and PNG and Port Moresby now because the Manus Island Detention Centre is closed, many of the clinicians are inexperienced. Um, there's a very confusing infrastructure depending on who has control of facilities. Um, refugees and asylum seekers will often go to Port Moresby Island but be told they can only go to, you know, they'll, they'll go to their, the, the, the hospital in Port Moresby to try and get help but they've been told they can only go to Pacific International Hospital with not enough support. So, um, and we know that children also are particularly um, are vulnerable to this and often become very, very sick as a result of um, conditions. But I'll just talk briefly, if, if I've got a moment, about the situation, the, the, the circumstances of Hamid Karzai. Have I got time to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, of course, yeah. Look, um, many, many you know, of your listeners might be aware of this case. Um, in 2013, as a young Iranian man, Hamid Karzai, who um, was detained at, at Manus Island Detention Centre. He presented in late August with, you know, the symptoms that, that had emerged as a result of a, an infected mosquito bite. So he was scratching his bite. He went to the local clinic at Manus Island, which was very hard, I must say, to also get into, and that's another story. Um, by the mid-afternoon the next day, he was vomiting. His heart rate and fever had increased, and he was getting quite sick. And by that evening, he needed a wheelchair to access the bathroom. So very quickly, within two days of having flu-like symptoms arising from this untreated mosquito bite, infection relating to that, he was very ill. Now, by early September, Hamid Karzai died after being, um, at the very last moment, urgently evacuated from Port Moresby to, to Brisbane. Um, he'd become septic, he was uh, in, in a, a toxic shock, he was unconscious and, and much of this was entirely, well it was entirely preventable but um, it was clear from the reports into his preventable death that the failure to act by the department was a, was a critical element along with many other errors in his death. In his death. So we can see how it's not just the lack of access to medical care, but the reluctance and the refusal over years of the Australian government to actually act when it was necessary to act to prevent someone dying. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge um, that person's life and 
how that death was so so easily so easily preventable and you know that yeah thank you for bringing light to that and I also want to say in terms of um in terms of getting medical treatment in detention in terms of um, medivac I I know that you know asylum seekers refugees can only get a medivac in rare cases if they are facing quote-unquote a life-threatening medical emergency or need critical or complex care and I don't know, from where I'm sitting, every second in violent detention has an impact on health. Everybody here needs critical or complex care. And as you just touched on, um, this was an infected mosquito bite, which turned into something much more because the conditions there aren't great. There's access. So what is even defining what is critical or life-threatening? Is the department even approving these transfers? Yes, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, prior to Medicare, that's all of the decision on what constitutes life-threatening or critical was, was eventually out of the department and not to a medical professional. So this is what made the Medicare, the short-lived Medicare law, so important. Um, there are really significant interventions to provide some protection to people whose health was severely compromised by detention offshore. And I should note also that we have, you know, other cases like you know, people presenting with really serious dental problems after years of not having adequate dental treatment, people with skin conditions that are now kind of um, chronic skin conditions as a result of, of where they've been held offshore. Um, and, uh, of course, there have been many detained, you know, with those conditions who were not eligible for evacuation even under many back rules. But importantly, um, you know, the, the, the introduction of many back rules were really a response to um, the um, concerns about the way in which the Australian government approached um, or responded to, you know, serious or, or, or life-threatening medical conditions, in which um, the, the definition was basically that a refugee or asylum seeker must be in need of almost critical and complex medical treatment that cannot be treated in Nauru or PNG, or alternatively must be facing a life-threatening emergency. Now, even in those cases, as we saw in the case of Hamid, and he has a really, really sad story of, of his death, at the time when their approach was made to the department, uh, one of the, um, the, the, the Canberra-based director of, of, of health, detention health services responded in one um, email, I'm wondering why this can't be managed at, at Manus Island. Um, even something unusual should be able to man be managed locally. Um, and there was a clear resistance to um, evacuation of Hamid at that time. So the Medivac laws really were important because they um, introduced a new um, a policy in which the well, new process, which meant that if two doctors recommended a transfer to mainland Australia for medical reasons, the minister had an obligation to make a decision to approve or refuse the request within 72 hours. So that's critical, you know, imposing an obligation because often these requests would simply be ignored. Refusal could be issued on the basis of character or national security grounds, but any request that the minister refused would be considered by an independent health advice panel with eight members on that panel. Okay, one The panel approved the request, then the, the minister would only refuse the second final time. So it really put a stop to some of those yeah, definitely very, very important um, policy and, you know, department process to be put in place. Claire, we're sadly very uh, running out of time, so I think I'll just very briefly, if you just want to um, leave us with this last question. Um, you know, we know that um, 
Moz Amitabar has taken the federal government to court um, and arguing that refugee and asylum seekers in hotels is obviously unlawful, describing it as an invisible coffin or torture centre. And it really, you know, has the hope for a really important precedent. Um, briefly, how do you think that we can support refugees and asylum seekers in this, in currently in detention? Um, th- thanks, Inez. Look, I, I think it's, it's really important that this case is proceeding and, and uh, it shows that legal forms can provide potentially one avenue for redress. But I think there's a number of ways. I mean, obvious one is to keep this on the public agenda, as, as you and 3CR are doing, which is so important, and to keep contesting as well those damaging narratives that um, justify violent border protection policies. But it's also to engage directly with people in detention, to reach out and find ways of interacting with them. And I think this is a really important reminder to those detained that there are people that care because sometimes there's a sense of being entirely isolated. Um, but the other thing I'd say is important to avoid speaking and advocating in ways that diminish the voices of those seeking refuge and that treat them as new victims. They do have agency, they have voices, and I think this is what people like Moz are really continuing to assert, even including through this court case. Yeah, that's a very, very important point that you have agency and um, you're not, you know, there's not giving voice to the voiceless. They are fully capable of doing that. Um, we just need to support them the best we can. Thank you. No worries. Thank you, Claire. Have a good day. Thanks so much. Thanks, Annette. Bye. Bye. We've just heard from Dr. Claire Laughlin, who is a lecturer in criminology at the Social at University of Melbourne, and uh, she joins us today to speak on the health-related harms of Australians' refugee externalisation policies. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we might go into a track. Now, this one is from Becca Hatch. This is Without You. Where do I find you? Cause I've been searching far and wide Oh, I'm just sick of wasting time And babe, I wanna clear my mind, my mind Where do I find you? I'm calling for you now, can you hear me? I'm searching through the crowds, can you see me now?
That was Without You by Becca Hatch, and you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Now, I just wanted to plug a, uh, a very important show that is starting today. That's right, it's Homeless in Hotels, which launches today. Homeless in Hotels is a three-part radio series documenting life in hotels during the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's premiering today, Thursday, the 28th of July at 12 p.m., so that's the three-part series is running across three weeks on Thursdays at 12 p.m. It's produced by Kelly Whitworth and Spike Chipalone, who joined us a couple of weeks ago to discuss the program. So you can head back and listen to that at 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast to hear more about it. But they also spoke with City Limits yesterday about um about the series. And uh, look, Kelly produces Radical Australia here on 3CR and is really passionate about peer-produced media. Spike is a peer support worker at a Melbourne homeless health service with a lived experience of homelessness and drug use. And together they co-hosted the former 3CR peer homelessness show Ruminations and co-founded the Homeless Persons Union of Victoria. And they put so much work into bringing this series to life of sharing peer voices, of really making sure that this is something that is amplifying the analysis of people who are actually living through these experiences. So I'm really excited for this to air. I can't wait to hear it. And uh, I hope that listeners tune in. And if you don't catch it live, I'm sure you'll be able to listen back and we'll put information about that in our show notes as it becomes available. But that's Homeless in Hotels launching today, the first episode premiering today on 3CR at 12 p.m. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to go to another track now. This is Brand New by Makasha. I shouldn't be feeling this way But you came in my life and opened my eyes You made me feel some type of way I cannot describe I'm writing these lies Cause truth is I ain't got no clue What it is to be loved or be someone's boo I'm only praying that it's you I'm hanging around cause you make me feel new Like old times, wish we could rewind You make me feel new Stop wasting my time, come and be mine You make me feel new Like old times, wish we could rewind You make me feel new Sometimes I feel you don't see me For all that I am and all that I've done I don't mean to sound petty But I'm deserving more, you promised me more Cause truth is I ain't got no clue What it is to be loved or be someone's fool I'm only praying that it's
Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was brand new by Makasha. And now we are going to go into a live studio interview. That's right. We have, um, it's finally my turn. Wait, have we, have we all done one? Have we all had one person live in the studio? Yes, we have. Okay. And now it's your turn. It's my turn again. Uh, Joshua is here joining us. Joshua Badge, how are you today? Good. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. So, uh, I will introduce you briefly. Joshua is a writer and scholar living on Wurundjeri land in Melbourne and they're joining us today to speak about the need for a comprehensive public health response to the monkeypox outbreak to share some information on how to keep yourself and community safe and also to discuss the importance of destigmatizing the disease. So maybe we'll just jump straight into it. All right. So on the 23rd of July, the director general of the World Health Organization issued a statement that formally designated the current multi-country monkeypox outbreak as a public health emergency of international concern. And even though we've started to see cases rise in Australia, we've barely seen a public health response or adequate messaging about the disease. So could we start off by uh, talking a bit about what we currently know about monkeypox in terms of transmission and presentation? And what are some of the significant unknowns at this stage? That's a really good question, especially as you say, um, the cases are rising globally. There's now 16,000, and as of the 19th of July, there were 41 in Australia. Um, so in terms of uh, transmission and presentation, um, there's a lot that we don't know, and that is because the virus has mutated significantly um, since uh, previous outbreaks. Uh, that shouldn't necessarily stress anyone out, um, don't want to cause a panic, uh, but just from a, from a medical and a public health perspective, there's a lot of uh, assumptions that can't be made. For example, um, two really good examples is uh, that we don't know uh, how long people are infectious for when they uh, have um, MPX, uh, and we don't know whether um, having the virus will necessarily lead to immunity. And if it does, how long that immunity will be for. And those are all really important things to know when trying to formulate a public health response. Um, in terms of uh, presentation, um, this is another one of the things that have changed. So in previous MPX outbreaks, there have been, um, there's been a really standard kind of model of um, one symptom and then another one and then another one. Um, and it's, it's been really quite clear. But one of the things that's changed with this most recent outbreak is... Um, 
all of that went out the window. Um, so uh, lots of people have been um, presenting asymptomatically, so they'll get some symptoms but not others, um, and they'll also get them in different orders. Um, generally, the standout symptom has been um, things like uh, rashes, lesions, and sores, um, but even they have been in different areas to where they might usually present in previous outbreaks. Yeah, and I mean, I think the there's been especially with a lot of the the stuff being shared on social media and in the media, there's been a lot of kind of fear-mongering with the types of presentation as well with sort of extreme uh, extreme cases shown, which I don't think is particularly helpful. And so in the absence of a public, uh, a comprehensive public health response, both domestic, domestically and in other countries where outbreaks are growing, we're seeing obviously the rapid stigmatization of monkeypox, considering the levels of detection in gay, bisexual and other men who have sex with men. But could you unpack some of the serious concerns about this stigma and also some of the complexities around identifying this community as specifically affected? Absolutely. Um, in terms of stigma, it's almost uh, it's a little bit difficult to imagine a worse situation. Um, we have a you know the virus is literally called monkeypox, um, and uh, to have <laughs> and and to have an outbreak among an already stigmatized minority population globally and very quickly um, is obviously um, something that health authorities are quite sensitive about dealing with. And, you know, stigma is a bit of an ephemeral word to use. Everyone's got a kind of um, intuitive understanding, but it's a, a really big problem in health because stigma, stigmatization of a virus and of a particular community that it's affecting means that people will be hesitant to get tested. Um, they might get for a whole bunch of reasons. They might be hesitant to um, disclose. They might be hesitant to get treatment. Um, and, you know, and maybe the very worst thing, they, they might be hesitant to simply know information about it because it's such a source of anxiety and stress and stigma. Uh, in terms of the complexities around identifying a particular population, um, this is uh, a really complicated question and one that's been quite vexatious in community um, since the outbreak began. Um, there is a sense from some people in some quarters that identifying gay and bisexual and men, other, other men who have sex with men as an affected community is stigmatizing in itself and that um, the focus should be more general. Um, I think that's quite unhelpful and is essentially letting um, people who want to stigmatize the virus and want to stigmatize our communities decide public health policy for us. And what's most important is to get clear and unambiguous information to the people who need it. Um, there, are, there are other reasons why this has happened. So, for example, um, the World Health Organization has um, very diplomatically referred to uh, further spread, you know, quote-unquote, further spread among persons with multiple sexual partners in interconnected networks as a kind of facsimile for gay and bisexual men especially. Um, and there's lots of reasons why the World Health Organization has done that. Obviously, there are many member states in which homosexuality is illegal. They need to provide advice that all states can use. Um, and that's kind of filtered from the top down. And so there is has been a real hesitancy um, to identify... <laughs> Um, some communities. Um, and I think that's actually one of the main reasons why we haven't heard a lot in Australia yet is that um, public health authorities are extremely sympathetic to the issue of stigma and have really wanted to avoid inciting an anti-gay panic, especially among 
the you know the, the general population um and so it's um been unfortunate in some ways but i think the the motivation has been quite good in that um health authorities and chief health officers are really um essentially waiting for community controlled health organizations to take the lead on this which you know that is in the process of happening yeah and i mean I think the the concern here really is, you know, about making sure that things like testing and vaccine options are are readily available, you know, while community controlled organizations are getting around the type of messaging that's most appropriate. So I understand that there are two varieties of smallpox vaccine that can be used to immunize against monkeypox, but only one of these is available in Australia. It's very challenging to access and has other related complications as well. Can you tell us a bit more about the lag in vaccine rollout and diagnosis of monkeypox? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so the the vaccine situation is quite complicated, so I'll do my best to make it quite simple. As you say, there are two vaccines. Um, the old one, the very old one, is called ACAM2000, um, and uh, this is the one that is approved by the TGA and is technically available, though no one really knows how much supply we would theoretically have. Um, the main issues with this um, are that firstly, it's not safe for people living with HIV and immunocompromised people. And also it uses an extremely old, antiquated uh, method of delivery. So it's um, delivered via scarification with a bifurcated needle, um, which wow. is real old school. And the problem there is that most clinicians probably wouldn't have any experience with delivering it. Um, so not only is it not suited for this particular outbreak, um, 41% of all cases globally have been people living with HIV. Um, and so if they can't have the vaccine, that's not very helpful. Um, and it just isn't going to work as a, as a mass vaccination vaccine. Um, the newer generation vaccine is MVABN. Um, don't worry, you don't need to remember that. It's just the new one. Um, and that one is safe for people living with H HIV and also immunocompromised people. The issue is that that one is not approved by the TGA yet, um, and there is no supply of it in Australia. Um, and so that poses several hurdles. So firstly, um, it needs to be, uh, it will, it's very likely, I think, that it will be provisionally approved by the TGA. There's a mechanism for that, um, since it's already been approved by the European Medicines Authority and provisionally by the FDA in the US. Um, the, the, the next issue is getting supply. Um, uh, so the, there's only one pharmaceutical company that has the patent for it. Um, and uh, the EU just ordered 100,000 doses and New York is expecting 80,000 doses. So it's, I, I mean, I don't have this information, but it's quite possible that the pharmaceutical company simply won't have capacity to actually manufacture them in time for them to be very useful in Australia. Obviously, we have World Pride coming up in just six months. Um, so there is, um, and then it's about who's doing the ordering. So the federal government could order it, but then they would disappear into the national stockpile and no one would really be able to track what's happening with them. And so really it needs to be state health departments who are doing the ordering, which means you need to uh, negotiate eight jurisdictions ordering enough of this vaccine to make it financially worthwhile for the pharmaceutical company to bother applying to the TGA because it costs $100,000 um, to just get the ball rolling. So that's, that's the holdup is just it involves a lot of different players and a lot of different moving parts. Yeah, I mean, who could possibly have imagined that there would be another issue around vaccine patents? Um, 
I can't think of the last time that that has been a global <laughs> issue around, uh, you know, global vaccine apartheid and uh, concerns about pharmaceutical companies holding the keys to be able to produce uh, life-saving vaccines. Look, Joshua, we're going to have to come up to wrapping up soon, but I'm wondering if you could quickly take us through some immediate actions that, that need to be taken by federal and state governments on the spread of monkeypox and where listeners can find out more about how to keep themselves and their communities safe. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, so as we've kind of already um, foreshadowed, it's all about the vaccine um, and, you know, uh, COGS are rolling on that front. Um, after we secure supply, it needs to be approved and it needs to be rolled out, which will be like an all of sector, all hands on deck um, situation. Um, we need to increase sexual health clinic c- capacity for testing and for support, um, public health unit capacity for contact tracing, and it needs to be sensitive contact tracing. You know, the standard protocol is to notify workplaces of all cases, but obviously in our situation, that's going to out people who um, are in the closet or just men who have sex with men who don't identify as gay or bi. Um, there needs to be outreach, outreach clinics. Uh, the workforce needs to be trained. Um, um, MPX telehealth would be immensely valuable, um, as well as um, you know public health campaigns from community orgs. Um, there also needs to be quite a lot of um, government assistance going towards people who need to isolate. So the isolation period for MPX is going to be up to three, maybe even four weeks, um, depending on the particular guidelines that are adopted, because obviously it can be transmitted via touch and um, from clothes and things. Um, and that's a really long time for a, c- a casual worker or, um, you know, someone li- already living in poverty to not be able to work. Um, and so there needs to be um, financial support from the government and there needs to be accommodation support um, for people who can't isolate um, at, at home for whatever reason. Um, so a bit of a laundry list, but quite a lot needs to happen and very quickly. Um, in terms of finding out more information, I'm very happy to say that um, New South Wales Health has an absolutely fabulous MPX fact sheet. Um, you can just Google New South Wales Health and monkeypox and it will come up um, on Google. Um, the other thing to, and to keep in mind in terms of actions that people can do is just to know about um, the uh, the symptoms and know if they're particularly vulnerable. Um, so if you are a gay or bisexual man or a man who has sex with men um, and you have recently travelled abroad, abroad and had a really good time, um, if you've had multiple sexual partners in the last three months um, or a recent STI diagnosis, know that you are in the very, um, very high risk group. Um, uh, so in terms of, um, you know, if you're feeling unwell, if you have COVID-like symptoms, um, test for COVID, but also consider MPX. Um, if you have any lesions or anal pain, definitely get tested for MPX. And if you think you have MPX, consider getting tested for COVID, um, herpes, HIV, shingles or syphilis and vice versa. Um, and just remember to phone your clinic or GP before heading in to make sure that they have appropriate PPE and isolation protocols in place. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, I think you've wrapped it up really comprehensively. Encourage people to go check out that New South Wales uh, government fact sheet, and we will put a link to that in our show notes. Um, so if anybody listening now, if you are concerned or if you want to find out more, you can head there. Look, Joshua, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, that is about all we have time for today on Thursday morning breakfast, 3CR 855 AM. Inez, do you want to say goodbye? I would love to say goodbye. Thank you all for listening and have a great day. We will catch you next week.
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.